For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. This week, we're broadcasting from Dubai. In the United Arab Emirates. And if you haven't been here, you should put it on your bucket list. It's an incredible place. And uh, I'm sitting here looking out across the Arabian Persian Gulf. And uh, the water is just magnificent aqua. It happens to be 4 o'clock in the morning, so I can't actually see the water. But um, I'm at the um, Jumeirah Alcazar Hotel, which is part of the extraordinary Madinat Hotel, which has... Most amazing place. It's built like a um, Arabian, an old Arabian city, and it's on the beach of Jumeirah. It's got forty-four restaurants and bars. It's got an, a, th- a thousand-seat theatre, which I presented in today, and uh, it's a five-star hotel, of course. Six kilometres of canals, which is how you get around the hotel, and canals and little boats, and uh, which are the old-fashioned Arabian-type boats. It's on a two-kilometre beachfront which, with most magnificent white sand, and we're directly across from Iran. So this is the place, the Persian Gulf, which is just beautiful, and the water is magnificent, and it's where the Americans decide that they're always going to park their uh, sixth fleet. We're right opposite the Burj, which is that um, unusual sail-looking hotel, which is also beautiful. And uh, this morning I'm awake at four, having spent last night out in the desert at a Bedouin encampment with um, with camels, and uh, it's, it's almost indescribable. It's, it's just extraordinary, and uh, it was a fantastic night. I'm here for um, Liquor Marketing Group, and I made a presentation yesterday, which went extremely well, and uh, so it was good to get out with the delegates last night and and have a few drinks. So bear in mind that it's 4 a.m., but it's one of those trips that you'll remember for one long, long time. And it's it's great because we brought you the show from Los Angeles, from Switzerland, from India, from Sydney, from the Hayman Islands Resort, from Dubai. We've been all over the planet broadcasting to you. And this is the show that champions entrepreneurs, startups, early stage, and all small businesses, no matter where you are in the world. And we're heard right around the globe at exactly the same time 
every week. There's no question, I think, that um, less and less companies are doing conferences, but uh, you come to a conference like this one where it's been um, loads of, of workshops and, um, and breakaway groups, and then everybody came together for my presentation yesterday, and uh, it is fantastic. If people come in with the right attitude like the Linker Marketing Group have, and they're determined to learn from each other and, and network and, and learn from, from presenters, then they're a fantastic boon to your business. And I wouldn't be surprised if Linker Marketing Group have a tremendous year next year because the enthusiasm here is just phenomenal. Now, there was a great response last week when I talked about the appalling lack of women board members and executives at Twitter, Facebook, Google, Yahoo, Apple, and most of the people that contacted me were absolutely surprised at this sorry state of affairs. People thought there were more um, women, it assumed that there were more women connected with these high-tech companies than there actually are. I think it's a nice impression that they seem to have. And uh, there was an article during the week that um, there was a sign posted in the women's bathroom at Twitter, which has got a um, a woman carrying two two beers. She obviously looks like a, a waitress. She's got big boobs, and uh, it was po- it was posted in the women's bathroom to suggest that um, uh, Twitter is not that female friendly, and uh, they copped a lot of flack over. Um, over the lack of women. So, and the sign says um, it was spotted by a Twitter engineering manager, Jill Wetzler, who said that um, seen on a sign in the Twitter office, in the women's bathroom, no less, think this is directed at me. <laughs> it's, um, it, it's great. So, I, I suspect that after the flack that they've received and the response that we got from um, talking about, just there's just no women board members, and it's just appalling. And that's at all of the major companies that we expect to be leaders in this day and age. Now, uh, last week I said that I'd speak about the importance of having a consumer benefit uh, consumer purchasing benefit, and I spoke about that yesterday to the guys at Liquor Marketing Group. Um, but before I do that, I'll just mention some of the things that uh, made news this week. There's no question that one of the products that will have a dramatic effect on the future business and how we manufacture and distribute goods is a 3D printer. Now, Gartner's announced that it expects about 57,000 3D printers at a cost of $10,000 or less to ship in 2013. Now, that's a jump of about 50% in one year. They expect 100,000 units to sell next year and 200,000 units to sell the year after. Now, these are the $10,000 units, which are a pretty basic unit. Um, but now you can get 3D printers for 500 bucks, and you'd expect that most businesses dorm rooms and even homes will have 3D printers right next door to the 2D printer. There's also claims that the um, 3D printing industry will grow from 
$288 million business this year to $6 billion by 2017. And as I said, I believe 3D printers will have the most dramatic effect on the manufacture and distribution industry than any product ever since the advent of the assembly line and the truck. Um, we will have a situation in the not that distant future where instead of going to the store and buying products, you will simply download the pattern and print the product in your own home. And, uh, and if you do need to get something delivered, they'll be delivered by drones. We're only about a year away from the government in the United States approving drones for deliveries. It's going to make one hell of a difference. Now, just a couple of years after Steve Jobs' passing, Apple's Passbook is now the fourth most popular mobile commerce app among U.S. consumers. The fourth, the Passbook. And it's just behind eBay, Amazon, and Groupon. Over 20% of iPhone users already have Passbooks, and they download coupons and gift and loyalty cards Airline boarding passes and movie tickets, event tickets. I think Major League Baseball's using it. So, um, and large retailers, Sephora, Target, restaurants, and they're all using it as a channel for acquiring and retaining customers. And uh, I would be very surprised if Apple didn't add a payment processing capability because it can make warrantless credit card payments with, with Passbook. And it seemed to be the, um, the perfect addendum to the fingerprint authentication feature that they've now put on their phones because they have Apple has over 400 million credit cards on file, possibly upwards of 500 million credit cards on file. So it's in the perfect position to leverage these credit card relationships and turn Passbook into a phenomenal transaction platform. We've also spoken a lot on this program about social media and how effective it is in driving business. It's important to realise that different social media platforms appeal to different demographics, so you can't just go out and use any one. So depending on who your target segment is, what your product is, the um, you'll use a different platform. So some platforms are preferred by um, young adults who are the most active in the evenings, others by high-income professionals who usually post during the day. So it's very important to understand the demographics of social media audiences before you undertake a campaign. You know, Facebook still skews young, but among the um, 45 to 54 age group, it is booming. It's seen a 50% growth in the last 12 months. And among US users, 73% of users with an income of 75000 or more are all on Facebook. Compare this with just 17% who were on Twitter. So 73% of $75,000 pluses on Facebook, 17% on Twitter. When it comes to Instagram, about 70% of Instagram users 
are women. Now, not surprisingly, um, as a younger population, 27% of 18 to 29-year-olds use Twitter, compared with only 16% above 30. So Google Plus is the most male-oriented, with 70% of its users being male, while Pinterest, although I suspect this is changing, Pinterest has 84% women users, and most of them have tablets. But I suspect that that's going to change fairly quickly. Tumblr is strong with teens and young adults, but only 8% of US internet users with incomes above 75,000 are using Tumblr, but that I think that will also change. So you need to know these statistics before you establish an effective strategy. I think I mentioned that it's 4 a.m. in the morning here in, uh, in the Arabian resort of Jumeirah El Khazar Hotel in the Persian Gulf, but it is absolutely fantastic. Now, one other thing that I've... Um, noticed overseas is that streaming's now available to cable subscribers around the world but it's much more difficult prospect in the United States earlier this month Netflix signed a deal with Virgin Media in the UK to bring its streaming service to um, the cable operators 1.7 million subscribers a similar done's been similar deals been done in Sweden uh, but the door for increased cooperation between the cable operators and Netflix in the United States, eh, not so close because um, the US cable operators can lock them out. But Netflix has got about 29 million subscribers in the US. It's producing its own product. Um, Comcast are now competing directly with it for just $5 a month. And uh, it seems that every major cop- cable operator now has TV that allows users to watch channels live on computers, smartphones or tablets. They've been rapidly expanding this functionality. But Netflix has produced Emmy Award-winning, absolutely blockbuster original content, House of Cards, Rest of Development and a number of others. If they can continue to produce high-quality, high-profile productions like HBO's managed to do for the last few years, then I think cable operators are going to have to sit there and think twice about this. But at the moment, TV networks in America simply not interested in opening up to Netflix. Now, last week we spoke about how important it is for companies to have an effective consumer purchasing benefit. Now, your your CPB, it's your most powerful point of difference from your competitors. In order to determine your CPB, you need to think about, you know, what's the customer really looking for from your product or service? What is it that they're really buying? For example, um, if you're um, a hardware store, for example, you're not selling hardware. People don't go to a hardware store because they've got a desperate need to buy hardware. They go to a hardware store because they need to solve a problem. So hardware stores, they're in the problem-solving business. So 
we need to bear that in mind when we're thinking of a CPB. It's got to be what we are selling. So I'll talk more about a CPB after the break. I'm going to be back with Doug Lip, who is um, training from the famous Disney University, and he'll be back with me in just a moment. This is Bob Pritchard from the Persian Gulf. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, this is the segment of the show where we interview people who've achieved great success and who are making a real difference in the world. This program's all about entrepreneurs and are helping you to become a success. I'm laughing because my next guest is, is a great guy and uh, we were just chatting um, off air a second ago and it was very funny. Um, now, very extensive research by a range of companies and organisations, including a lot of work done by PricewaterhouseCoopers, demonstrates conclusively that the major contributor to business growth and return on investment is customer service. Now, we all hear this mantra over and over again, but we don't do anything about it. And this research also demonstrates that customer service leaders can charge up to 13% more for a product than their competitors. Now, when you think of customer service, it's very difficult not to think of Disney. You know, they're so friendly and effusive and the attention to detail is is unbelievable. And anyone who has a business and employs a couple of people, you know, you realise how difficult it is to get even one person (laughs) to come into work enthusiastic and, and smiling, far less thousands of them and uh, I often speak at conferences at Disney parks and if you get up in the morning at about six o'clock and go for a walk 
There are hundreds of little worker bees painting and repairing fences and painting trash cans and making sure that the place looks exactly like it did on day one. Now that is attention to detail and it is a great contributor to this, to the happiest place on earth. So that brings me to today's guest, Douglas, at age 29. We're heads of the training team at the world-famous Disney University. Doug's fluent in Japanese and was appointed to the startup team for Tokyo Disneyland. He trains and speaks to corporate executives about the need to embrace change, provide great service, and continually innovate. He's written eight books on leadership, customer service, and international business. And Doug's latest book is Disney U. How Disney University Develops the World's Most Engaged, Loyal, and Customer-Centric Employees. That has got to be the world's longest title for a book. (laughs) And I've mentioned many times before I belong to a tremendous organization for thought leaders called METAL. It stands for Media Entertainment Technology Alpha Leaders. And Doug spoke to us uh, just a couple of weeks ago about his experience with Disney and, and his um, philosophies on business, and uh, he killed them. We had a room full of people that have seen it all, done it all, are amazingly successful, and Doug just brained them. He was fantastic. Hi, Doug. How are you? Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business. Bob, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat today. This should be fun. Yeah, how did your involvement with Disney University come about? Because you're only 29 years old. That's pretty young to be um, training people in such a, what seems like a pretty important role. Well, I was fortunate enough to be on a pretty fast track. I started in, uh, in a college internship program, went to grad school in Japan, came back to Disney, and it timed out perfectly with the, the years before Tokyo Disneyland was opened up. So I actually speak Japanese fluently and was able to start training some of the Japanese executives who came from Japan for extensive uh, training in the U.S. And quite frankly, when I was able to uh, address these senior executives and then talk to them in Japanese in front of senior American executives, you kind of stick out in a, in a good way. Yeah. And then I was offered a, uh, an internship position in the company, which was a very uh, aggressive, intense, kind of like a shark tank environment. Yeah. And 20 of us young kids, mid-20s at the time, were picked from every operating department and division, and we were set through about six months of intensive programs. And we all had to propose different strategies to move the company forward. And luckily, I was able to join what's known as the Disney University because of my interest in employee development and organizational development. I love the way you, twice in that opening gambit, you said fortunate and lucky. Now, I don't believe in fortunate or lucky. I think that, uh, you know, people get where they get because of bloody hard work and putting yourself in the right place at the right time. Because I'm always saying to people who listen to this show who are entrepreneurs, if you're going to sit back and rely on luck, <laughs> you're going to be shit out of it because it ain't going to happen. Um, you've got to work hard. So, um, And I've, I've seen you speak, so I know how clever you are. So there's nothing, nothing about luck or fortunate in this whole deal. All right. What's the major lesson that Disney can teach corporations worldwide? And... 
you know, what are the primary universal lessons of Disney? Well, the, the lessons that I write about in my book with the world's longest title, thank you very much, <laughs> uh, Disney University was founded by a man hired by Walt Disney. And this man's name is Van France. And so I want to be very, very clear that the lessons I talk about and I preach about to this day are really, uh, they started with Walt Disney himself and they extended through this man, Van France, and many, many, many leaders at Disney. And really the answer to your question is creating an organizational culture and set of values that supports constant development. In your opening piece, you talked about the maintenance crews at Disney theme parks, and I think that's vitally important, and equally important is the maintenance and caretaking of the human resources in any organization, and one or the other usually falls by the wayside, especially when budgets get slim and people start looking for areas to cut. So it's really about organizational culture and values. What... um well, of course, the experiences as you talk about today are also, while they're um, partly Van France and partly uh, Disney, they're also tempered and honed by the fact that you work with large corporations all across the world all the time. And so, you know, your message is... is um, right up to date for now and it's also preparing people for what they need to do in the future yeah and you know I'm I'm constantly testing and and challenging myself and Disney philosophies against these more modern organizations or organizations that might have been around for 100, 200, 300 years that are facing modern challenges and quite frankly Bob I think that the things that I learned at Disney despite the fact that they are decades old, are actually quite timeless and would be a benefit any organization to adopt some of these things. And it doesn't mean that you have to have a theme park or a, a show business environment. I apply these same concepts to hospitals, to major banks, major corporations around the world with equal success. I think, you know, what we, what we tend to forget is that people still hurt, bleed and cry today about the same stuff they did 40 years ago, 400 years ago. So once you get the form, and all business is about communicating with people. doesn't matter what you do or how you do it or where you do it, it's about communicating with people. So if you're giving people what they want and it giving, to, giving it to them in an environment in which they feel good, you're much more likely to get a sale and that's what keeps doors open. Yeah, and you mentioned in your leading about the, the benefits of having stellar customer service and what that means to the bottom line. And what I see as a mistake that a lot of organizations make is that they, in the guise of going after improved customer service, start to really um, hammer their internal employees. So, for example, if I want to uh, improve wait times at a call center for my customers calling in, oftentimes I see organizational leaders going in and hammering the supervisors and the frontline employees in the call center and treating them with disrespect and ultimately that goes over the phone lines and so one of the things that that I learned at Disney and I see in the greatest organizations is how you treat your staff and how you treat your employees is the customer service that will go over the internet or go over face-to-face interactions. 
Well, people forget that um, every person in your company is an ambassador for your company every time they go and talk to anybody or talk about their jobs or talk about anything. And uh, a lot of companies forget that they have internal com- uh, customers that are just as important, if not more important, really, than their external customers. Um, Van, what was the relationship between Van and Walt Disney? I mean, how did... Well, Van was actually a trainer slash OD consultant in factory environments for most of his career, and in his mid-40s was hired by Walt when Walt was just getting ready to open up Disneyland in Anaheim. So this was in early 1955. The Disneyland opened in July of 55, and basically Walt said to Van, hey, look, we spent millions of dollars, in fact, it was most of Walt's own money, millions of dollars creating this wonderful a set of buildings and rides and restaurants. So we've got the facade all set up, but now we need to populate it with people who will make it into what Walt's dream of creating the happiest place on earth would be, and we can't do it with machinery alone. We have to do it with people. And he had seen what what Van had done in factory environments, and Walt knew, frankly, that a Disneyland is, quite frankly, a factory into which you're inviting guests. And oftentimes those guests are not really paying attention to what's going on. So Van took the, the bull by the horns and created a onboarding new hire orientation program that ultimately evolved into what we know today as the Disney University. The Disneyland is such an extraordinary place. I think, you know, you, you talk to companies and they say, you know, it's difficult to... Um, run a, a profitable business and be able to give the great customer service that you need to and to be able to train staff and all those things because they cost so much money and we're in a cutthroat industry. And yet why I like going to Disneyland is that it's the perfect creative environment where they have a great business that makes a shed load of money every day and has been doing so for 70, 60-something years. And, uh, you know, you can combine those two things and do it well. It also proves that money isn't the major determinant of what people buy or what they do. You know, there's a great quote from, from Van, who was, again, a mentor to me and to many, and he really, uh, I think, did a very good job of channeling Walt Disney's energy and creativity. And Dan would always shout at us. You know, he was in his 60s, and we were in our late 20s. You know, most of us were mentally a lot older than he was. And he kept saying to us, money is always going to be tight, but creativity is always free. Yeah. He never let anything get in the way of always improving or uh trying to second guess what was going to work with our own employees who we considered to be our most important guests because they're the ones that were attending our training program. Sure, sure. Um, Walt Disney and Roy Disney, they had an extremely successful relationship. And, you know, Walt is in the history books forever. I mean, he's a, he's a legend and uh, one of the great entrepreneurs of all time. In fact, I did a, the Tom te- top ten entrepreneurs in my view of all time a couple of weeks ago on the show, and, and Walt was right up there. Um, but Roy kind of falls through the cracks. And it appears to me that recognition of innovations much more important than sound business strategies and management. Um, what are your thoughts on that? How, 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 was, how did that relationship really work? 
Well, two two points. One is the the relationship between Walt and Roy, and then this concept of why was Walt uh, recognized. First of all, I think that it's vitally important to have the entrepreneurial dreamer, the Walt Disney kind of a person on the team, and it's equally important to have that operations guru on the team who can make sure things get done, because we've all seen those wonderful startups with lots of creative people, but then as soon as they get into the operations mode, things fall apart, and likewise, we've seen organizations that are dominated by operations-oriented people that can't get their nose off the grindstone, and the market passes them by, so I think both are equally important, and then to the point about Walt Disney, he just happened to be the, the lead singer in the band, and you've, you've had a show business background, and you know that it's equally important to have a stellar a backup crew, whether they're the roadies, whether they're the drummers or the bassists or whomever, so, and Roy was amazingly creative in his ability to work the finance and to make deals happen with the bankers who were traditionally and to this day are very wary with the money that they loan. so together they were both amazingly creative. It just so happens that Walt was out front, he was the one on the Sunday night TV show, and he got most of the press. Yeah, I think if you look at um, you look at Apple since um, Steve Jobs passed away, it's become much less visionary and much less innovative. And you know, the big innovation this year is coloured phones. I mean, hello. <laughs> Seriously. Although they've sold about fourteen million of the bloody things. So <laughs> right, right. What do I know? At the medal event, you told, incidentally, there's 15 words in the name of your book. That has got to be some sort of a record. And I'll just, I'll just mention it again because it really is a great book and I really want people to go out and buy it. It's called Disney U, How Disney University Develops the World's Most Engaged, Loyal and Customer-Centric Employees. It is a must read. You've got to get a hold of it. Anyway, going back to, at the medal event, You told some great stories that are both funny and they're also terrific lessons for every business, irrespective of what sort of thing they do. Can you just run through a couple of those stories? Because I love them. Well, sure. And and one of the things to to set this up is that one of the things I learned at Disney, and this all came directly from Walt through uh, Van and a number of people, is that um, we've got to have fun and work hard at the same time. And Walt would say when the subject permits, uh, we let fly with all the satire and gags at our command. And he was a proponent that laughter is no enemy to learning. And so I wanted to have some fun with the metal group. And so one of the things that, that we learned in our first international theme park in Japan, this was <clears throat> 30 years ago this year in, uh, in Tokyo, we were getting ready to open Tokyo Disneyland and had a series of soft openings where you would invite the press in and Oh, various family members. So you might have 10,000 people in the park compared to 100,000 on a real day. So we had four or five days to, to get dialed in to grand opening. And the night before one of our first huge soft openings, the uh, one of the American executives was out giving a, a motivational speech to our graveyard custodial crew. And he was saying, we at Disney are known for our cleanliness so go out tonight and clean this park. Make it shine because tomorrow the eyes of the world will be upon us. And all this was duly translated into Japanese. And the Japanese went out and started cleaning with abandon. And I got a call at 3 in the morning from that executive who was frightened, upset, livid, a combination of emotions. And he said, what's wrong with those idiots you hired in custodial? And I said, nothing. 
we hired the best custodians from hospitals and factories around Japan. And he said, well, is it interpreting bad? I said, no, I speak the language. What you said was perfectly interpreted. And he said, well, then answer this final question. Why did the custodians claim the haunted mansion? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, they've replaced all the broken windows. They vacuumed up all the meticulously placed dust, and all the rust stains on the walls have been painted over. The place doesn't look haunted anymore. It looks like a hospital operating room is so clean. <laughs> what had happened is we had not trained the Japanese custodians in the haunted mansion because the artists were so busy making it look spooky, we couldn't allow anybody in there. And so we had not trained them in the appropriate environment, so it was a huge lesson for us that what's <laughs> obvious to one person, make it clean, is completely a foreign language or foreign concept to a different culture. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There are many examples, story. but it was just one of those things where you got to scratch your head and say, oh my gosh, there's always something to learn. Yeah, there is. That's for sure. Um, there was another story you told, um, oh, the, the great story about... Um, creative thinking or thinking outside the box with the, right, um, right. you know, you know the story I'm talking about. The train story. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, so, so again, we all think of Disney as this amazingly creative in, in, environment and it really is. But again, any of us can fall prey to the, to the challenge of being too close to our work and not seeing the obvious solution. So long story short, about three years before the park ever opened, we were told by the Japanese government, they had laws that said you could not have a train, a choo-choo train, chugga-chugga-choo-choo train running through a theme park that transported people. And if we wanted to have that, then we were going to be subject to a number of government regulations and taxes and just, it never would have opened on time as soon as you get the government involved, you know that. And we were so upset, it was like, well, how can you tell us we can't have five or six or seven stations like we have in California or Orlando? And we were more focused on how stupid the law was and what what a bunch of idiots these people were as opposed to coming up with a creative solution. And here's the point. When you have a multinational or multicultural team, different ages, different ethnicities, different languages, and you fully engage them, you're going to have a massively stronger team. And when we started doing that with our Japanese engineering staff, the solution became self-evident. A, a Japanese guy came up with the solution. He said, look, you guys are so close to this thing in Orlando and California. What is it that you really want in a train? And we said, well, we want the entertainment factor. He said, exactly. You don't really care if it transports guests when it comes right down to it. The sights and the sounds and the smells of that steam locomotive are are, are preeminent. And we said, yes. He said, then great. I've got a solution. Let's have a train system at Tokyo Disneyland where the guests get on at Station A. They do a loop around the park. And they get off at Station A. Technically, they haven't gone anywhere. Technically, they've not been transported. And that solution flew with the Japanese government. And what's interesting about it, Bob, is that it's no different than any other attraction in a Disney theme park. It's no different than Space Mountain, no different than Small World. Guests do a loop and they get off at the same place. But it was different for the steam locomotive, and we hadn't seen that solution. Yeah, I love I love that story. It just It does show that... You know, you do get too close to things. One of the things I did want to want to touch on was Walt's attention to detail. And, you know, I, I really admire people at Disneyland who have been on 
in a particular ride or whatever for so long and yet they still, hi, at the end of the day after greeting 50 million people and week in, week out, they still have the same exuberance and enthusiasm and act just as surprised um, as they did on day one and probably more so. Walt was apparently um, a, a real attention to detail person and the story is that um, he used to go to the park once a week or whatever and ride, for example, in the jungle boat cruise, um, ride in every, every boat and um, just watch the performance of the, um, of the drivers. Is that, is that a true story? Yes, in fact, one of my one of my uh, bosses at Disney University was an 18-year-old skipper on one of those jungle cruise boats, and he recounted to me when I interviewed him for Disney U uh, for the book. He said, "Yeah, I've got a very vivid memory of Walt riding on all the boats, and then getting off of the the last boat at Jungle Cruise and gathering all of us skippers." And he was livid. He said. We spent millions of dollars on this attraction, and all of the guests are excited to be here. Yet every time I rode that boat, and you guys were driving this boat through the deep, dark jungles, and the sounds were were perfect, the soundtrack was perfect, and the audio animatronic animals are jumping out of the bushes when they should. For example, when the hippos jumped out of the water, and they're spraying the guests, the guests are screaming with delight. They're thrilled. And I looked at each one of you skippers, and you were yawning and acting like, oh, my gosh, I've seen that hippo a thousand times today. He said, and this is a, a phrase that we use at Disney all the time, we have to keep plussing the show. In other words, improving yeah. it. And he said, you have to balance out the millions of dollars that we've invested in the hardware with using current vernacular with software. You guys have to practice looking surprised. And my boss said, you know, since we knew Walt was going to be back next week, we spent the next week looking surprised. And that's really the point is, as we talked at the, at the beginning of the show, is are you maintaining both the facilities and the people? And if your leadership team is not constantly doing what Walt did, meaning walking the park, either literally or figuratively, if you're not getting in touch with the front lines, there is no way you'll know really what's going on out there. And so one of the things I challenge my consulting clients to this day is when I see executive teams that have every excuse under the sun yeah. for not getting out and walking the park and visiting their, their clients, I get right in their grill and say, why not? If Walt could do it, why can't you? Yeah. Now, I'm sitting out there. We're, ru we're running a bit short of time, but I'm sitting out there and I'm listening to this show and like I'm sure I'm like you, I have bookshelves that I've got every book ever written, I reckon, on business of every conceivable subject. Why should I buy Disney U? What am, Disney U, what am I going to get out of it that I won't get out of, I'm looking at my bookshelf now, out of all these hundreds of books that I've got already? Well, Disney U is not a how-to book. It's not a training manual. It's a book about how to assess your own organizational culture and philosophy and the, the philosophies and the values that have helped Disney as a corporation since 1928. So Disney is approaching, well, Mickey Mouse is 1928. Disney started in 23. So close to 90 years now, we have values in place that I think will transcend any challenge that is facing organizations to this day. And by reading Disney U, the readers will get a real good opportunity to assess their organizational culture and come up with ideas that will be sustainable, not just flash-in-the-pan, short-lived successes.
Doug Lip, a great speaker, a terrific trainer, and Disney U is a fantastic book. And I look forward to having a beer with him in Bahrain in a couple of weeks where we're actually going head-to-head in competing seminars. But nevertheless, he's a, he's, he is terrific. And if you want to learn more about Doug or hire him for an event, of course, don't hire him over me, but if you want to hire him for an event after you've hired me, go to douglip.com. So pick up Disney U, go to douglip.com. This is Bob Pritchard. You're listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on voiceamericabusiness.com. And I will be back with you in just a moment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, no bullshit business radio show. We're coming to you. It's now 4.48 in the morning here in Dubai at the wonderful Arabian resort of the Jumeirah Madnat Hotel. It's a fantastic hotel. It's got 44 restaurants and uh, a 1,000-seat theater that I presented in yesterday. It's got uh, six kilometers of canals, which is how you get around the complex, 5,000 staff, and it is just incredible. It's on, I'm looking out at the moment at the absolutely beautiful aqua Persian Gulf. It's opposite the Burj. You've probably seen the iconic Burj Hotel, which looks like a sail um, right opposite that, and uh, it's just fantastic. I'm here for a conference for the Liquor Marketing Group, and I've got to say that um, Doug Meisner and his and his team have put on one of a conference um, for great opportunity for people to learn. It's been a perfect balance of um, of education and networking, and uh, more companies should do it because it really does assist 
in developing camaraderie and getting people to understand and know each other. And we've had a fantastic conference. And uh, I'll thank Doug. Thank you very, very much. It's been terrific. And the rest of the team. We salute and applaud entrepreneurs on this program. And uh, New York City's tech scene has just created its first billionaire. So, um, Shutterstock CEO, Jonathan Oringa, is a billionaire at age 39. Well done. Fantastic. We love billionaires. And uh, we're certainly creating a lot of them these days. And, uh, and they're all young, which is a great thing. So... Every week we try to bring you emails from listeners around the world and uh, I like to give our female entrepreneurs an equal opportunity. So my first email today comes from Michelle Donovan from Bad Harzburg in Germany. Now, for those of you who do not know, bad in Germany means bathroom, but for the context of bad prior to a town name, it means the town has some approved health benefits and usual, usually it's a natural spa or something like that. So not only does the Bob Pritchard Radio Show bring you a lot of information about business, but it's a bloody good educational tool for language and geography as well. <laughs> now Michelle's email reads, Dear Bob, thanks for a great show. I'm an expat living in Germany for two years and despite your funny but cute accent, I don't know how funny it is. Not sure how cute it is either. I never miss the show. But I must confess we don't listen live because it's on about 2 a.m. in the morning, but we do listen to the archives. I've been trying to raise funding for a business concept that I have, and I've sent out a couple of dozen business plans, which I do so say myself, very comprehensive and thorough. I'm looking to raise just 500,000 euros. Now, I'm not quite sure with the fluctuations in the currency during this dreadful, ridiculous American um, shutdown of the government, um, but I guess it's about $600,000, $650,000. But to date, I've received nothing but polite thank you very much. Your project looks extremely interesting. We wish you lots of luck with it. But so far, I have had no offers of funding. I know that you solicit funding for businesses. What am I doing wrong, and how can I improve my prospects? Well, that's a great question, Michelle. Really, um, raising funds is extremely difficult. And as far as I know, there's no such thing or fire way to get funding. The best I can do is to tell you what works for me and our group. And uh, I think the first thing to realize is that all of the venture capitalists that I know receive 10 to 50 business plans every single day in addition to the hundreds and hundreds of emails that they receive on all sorts of other business. So they're all extremely busy people, and they've got either their own businesses or their own investment interests um, to be concerned with, as well as looking for people to invest in. So if you send them a 50-page business plan, and 10 other people send them a 50-page business plan, they've got 500 pages of stuff to read. Now, the average person only reads about in an hour. So 10 business plans is going to take them a day and a half to read. And they probably allocate about half an hour a day to it. So, you know, most business plans just end up being thrown in the trash. In my experience, 
what a potential investor wants is a one or two page summary of the project so they can very quickly determine whether or not they're interested in receiving more information. Now, that's really important. If they want, if they want to receive more information from you, you've changed the paradigm. You're not trying to sell them. They're now trying to solicit from you. It's a different deal. Now, there's another trick to this two-page summary. An investor is much more in them than they are in you. And they really don't give a damn whether they're going to invest in a new app or a medical device or a new fuel or a property opportunity. They don't give a damn. What they're interested in is initially not so much the machinations of the product, but a brief paragraph on the 10 or 12 points that are most interested to them. And they want to be able to quickly assess the risk-reward ratio because that's what it's about for them. So these points include what, you know, what the management is, what the concept is, is there a market for it, how big's the market, who are the management, that's a really critical one, and what is their experience in the specific area they're talking about. You know, if you're, um, if you're trying to sell them a particular product and the experience is in you know, running a corner delicatessen, it's not going to be impressive. They want to know... Um, what the specific plan is to penetrate the, the market, what are the risk factors, how much money is required, what are you going to do with the money when you get it, um, what does the investor get from his investment, and uh, what's the exit strategy. They're the most important ones, I guess. And none of those initially needs to be more than just a few lines. Now, before you send them this information... You really want to get them on the phone. Tell them briefly about your product or project and see if they might even be interested in. They may not. I often write and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite that initial two-page document. And I can rewrite them sometimes ten times before you come up with that really succinct, powerful document that's going to get a result. And uh, when they read this information... If they're interested, they'll contact you, and then you'll send them some more information. And what I usually do is send out an eight or a ten-page document, not a fifty-page business plan, um, which elaborates on all of those issues that I put in the first two-pager. You've got to give them a few days to read it, and then telephone them to gauge their interest and answer their questions. At this point, you should be trying to get a face-to-face meeting. But it's equally likely that they will ask you for a full business plan, perhaps for themselves or for the, usually for their financial advisor. If they ask for a full business plan, we actually rewrite the business plan so it becomes an investor plan. So it looks at the document from it looks at the project from an investor's viewpoint, and it's actually quite a different document. We've had considerable success with this strategy, and I suggest that you probably will too, Michelle. So don't start the ball rolling with a business plan because that is all about you and they care about them. Tomorrow, our office in LA will send you out a copy of Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, my latest, latest hardcover and audio book. I'll enjoy it. So we're coming to you, as I said this week, from the Liquor Marketing Group Conference in Jamara El Kazar Hotel, on the wonderful Persian Gulf, most beautiful aqua water you've 
ever seen in your life. And to Doug Meisner and his team again, thank you very much for a great conference. You know, people really worked together and, and wanted to learn, and I'm sure that in the next 12 months, because of it, they'll have a bumper year. We uh, not enough conferences these days. We need to get back to the old-fashioned way of training all the people that work with us and for us. So if you're a regular listener to the show and are benefiting from the advice that my guests and I give you each week, please tell you if you listen, go to my website at bobpritchard.com and subscribe to my monthly newsletter. Send in your questions. Email me. Follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Google+. Contact me on LinkedIn because we use LinkedIn all the time. It's our favorite business tool. And thanks for listening to the Dubai edition of the Bob Pritchard No Bullshit Business Radio Show for Entrepreneurs. And if you haven't been to Dubai, put it on your bucket list. It is great. And stay at this hotel. This is the most sensational hotel. Thousand-seat theatre that I spoke in uh, today. It's five staff, 5,000 staff, two kilometres of private beach, six miles of canals. It's fabulous. So... um, If you're serious about being successful, this is the place to come every week at the same time. This is Bob Pritchard, and I hope you have a fantastic week. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.